Hello and welcome to the Downtown Drash, a podcast exploring the weekly parasha. My name is Joe Wolfson. I'm the OUJLIC rabbi at the Bronfman Center of New York University. I'm here with my podcast co-host and colleague, Dr. Michal Biton, the Rosh Kihila of the Downtown Minyan. Today we are recording some thoughts on Parshat Emor. So, Michal, tell us, what's in Parshat Emor? Uh, hey, Rabbi Joe. So, Parashat Emor, uh, I would say it's a little bit different than the previous parashiot we looked at, in the sense that it's much more varied. Like, we can't easily categorize it as saying, oh, it's only talking about ritual purity or only about Kedushah holiness. It's a, it's a, you know, mixture of different, different areas uh, of law and narrative. I would say that it talks about, it begins by talking about the Kohanim, the priests, uh, talking about their special Kedushah, the special level of holiness they have to have, uh, and also the the mourning laws and the way that they are allowed and not allowed to learn, mourn um, their relatives. We actually use this to learn different laws about mourning that we are supposed to engage in. We learn about the, the service of the Kohanim and that the Kohanim have to embody a certain type of physical aesthetic and physical uh, perfection. We also encounter laws around korbanot uh, and which korbanot we're allowed and not allowed to bring. We le- we have a whole section here about holidays uh, in which we learn about different chagim and the service that we are supposed to engage in, including the Omer, the seven-week period between Pesach and Shavuot, which we're going to discuss today. Uh, and then there's some more laws, if I can say they're kind of random. We learn about the lechem apanim, the loaves of bread that... Uh, the Kohanim offered before Shabbat. We have a series of laws that have to do with retaliation, like a knife or an eye. And we also encounter the episode of the Mekalel, the person who cursed God and who is then uh, punished for it. So just like a lot of different laws. Um, and I think for me, the most significant one that I'm going to turn to you to discuss a little bit has to do with the Omer. So what is this thing called the, the Omer? What is this thing called the Omer? That is quite the question, given that depending at which moment you are standing in history, the meaning of the Omer seems to shift rather dramatically. In fact, I'm not sure I can think of a better example for the way in which different periods leave of, of Jewish history leave their sort of stamp on the collective memory of the Jewish people. So let's let's spend uh, a couple of minutes sort of just trying to tease out what are the different impressions that the Omer has. So if we're going to start at the beginning, as seems appropriate, the beginning is really our parasha, which is Perek Kaf Gimel, chapter 23 of Vayikra, in which we are told about the Korban HaOmer. Now, it's important where this is placed. As you mentioned, this is the chapter to do with the Chagim, the festivals. And in between the section about Pesach, which is the first of the Chagim discussed, and the section about Shavuot, which is the second Chag discussed, we have the Omer. The Korban, the offering of the Omer, is directly connected to the harvest and the agricultural cycle. This is part of the Torah's building upon the agricultural cycle, as it does quite frequently, in order to give that religious meaning. And this section concludes with something that many of us will recognize today. You shall count for yourselves this period, Hamishim Yom, 50 days, Sheva Shabbatot Tmimot, seven full 
weeks. And that is what takes us from Pesach to Shavuot. So that's the first. So Rabbi Joe, it sounds like we, we do a couple of different journeys here. We have this historical journey, uh, the Jewish people leaving Egypt uh, and walking towards Sinai. That's like Pesach to Shavuot. Uh, and we also have an agricultural uh, journey from you know a time of spring to a time in which you actually harvest what you've uh, sowed. And which, if we live in an agricultural society, the days of the Omer are a time of intense anxiety over whether your harvest is going to be successful. That, that's, that's correct. And I think it's really interesting to, to the degree that we can put ourselves back into what it must have been like to be an ancient Israelite farmers. I'm sure anxiety is a significant em, uh, emotion there. The historical point that you mentioned about Exodus to Sinai, what's so amazing is it's just almost there, but not quite there in the text. There is nothing which says the Omer is the period of time which takes us from leaving Egypt to standing at Sinai. It's so what you call in Hebrew, mufukash. it's so uh, sort of like required, desired that we would say that. And it has to wait until a little bit after the biblical text itself in order for the Ba'alei HaMidrash, those who sort of weave new meaning into the text to say the Omer is the period in which we move from being newly emancipated slaves to being a people who enters into a covenant with God. And that ends up also being a whole theme in Kabbalah, which thinks about the days between Pesach and Shavuot as being days in which we slowly um, walk away from gates of impurity that we, we were enveloped in in Egypt and become more pure to prepare to receive the Torah. Right, right. But what's the next stage is that even though it's the post-biblical period, which says that the Omer is not just an agricultural moment, it's also this moment of great religious journey towards Sinai. This period, the Talmudic period, is also the first time in which the Omer attains a darker character and hue as well. And this is to do with the story of Rabbi Akiva's students. Now, it's actually mentioned only very briefly. It's a Gemara in Masechet Yevamot, which tells us that during this period, 24,000 of Rabbi Akiva's students perished. Now, interestingly, although it's often phrased as 24,000, that's not actually the language of the Gemara. The language of the Gemara is 12,000 pairs of students of Rabbi Akiva perished. Because they did not treat one another with dignity or with honor. And I always like to think that you can almost see in the words that it's actually a function of their chavrutot with one another, a function of the way they learn with one another, which is the proximate cause for them not treating one another with respect. Yeah, you know, Rabbi Joe, I remember as a kid kind of learning about this in a very sort of um, not self-conscious way. Like teachers would just say easily, we have this period of mourning because of this, you know, 12,000 pairs of students who died because of not respecting one another. And there was something interesting there about kind of assuming that that it makes sense, that it's obvious that all of them um, will die because they weren't, quote unquote, nice to each other. Right. It's a, it's a pretty intense uh, response uh, for it. But it, it seems to me 
to connect back to the Shavuot theme as well, that Rabbi Akiva is so associated, perhaps more than any other individual, with the development of what we call Torah Shabal Peh, the Torah which, which we as people create. And Shavuot is the moment in our later associations of Torah Shebichtav, the, reci- the, the receiving of the written Torah. And it sort of seems to me that that play and that tension is that Torah Shabal Peh is what we try to create throughout the year. And it's what we dedicate our lives to in, in, a, spe- in a specific sense or in a broad sense to living a, a human Torah. But Shavuot sort of brings us back to standing all equal before Sinai. And the way in which we treat one another has to be able to match up with that. And sort of Shavuot is the great equalizer. Hmm. So so I think what you're saying is that Shavuot kind of uh, demands that we have a certain relationship with each other in order to be deserving or even able to receive the Torah from Sinai. And that's where Rabbi Akiva's students forgot. Right, right. That's beautiful. You know, I started getting really curious about the Omer and all of the morning practices when I was a student in seminary. Uh, I was in a pretty from seminary, let's say. And during this time, the big argument that my friends we're trying to figure out is, uh, is the morning of the Omer significant enough that it should prevent us from celebrating things like Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israeli Independence Day? Uh, and, you know, looking back, it's funny that that was such a big focus of our discussion. We were really uh, pretty from, if I can say from as a social and cultural uh, sort of, a, of label. Um, and later on, when I was an undergraduate, I actually decided to do some research around this uh, and try to figure out why do we have all, this, all of this minhagim of the Omer? And minhagim, to be clear, are not laws precisely. They are customs, right? Um, why do we have all of this minhagim of the, of the Omer? Uh, and and how, how strong should they be in terms of our, um, you know, having to, to keep them? And, and, you know, in... And what did you find? What did they find? That's a... Is it Rabbi Akiva's students? Uh, well, you know... The, the paper that I ended up writing for Professor Kannerfogel uh, in Revel and Yeshiva University, uh, basically what I found out is that this practice developed fairly late when we compare it to like, you know, Alachic development. Uh, the Talmud, the Gemara does not talk about mourning practices. It does talk about the death of Rabbi Akiva's student, but it doesn't tie them to a specific set of mourning practices. We really begin to encounter them in Geonic uh, literature. Uh, that begins talking about not having uh, weddings during this time. Uh, and yes, relating it to the death of the students of Rabbi Akiva. Uh, and, and as time develops, I would say the time period in which uh, the minagim of the morning of the Omer become stricter and become more widespread more widespread are actually um, during medieval times in Ashkenaz as a response to the tragedies of the Crusades which often coincided with this time of mourning in the Omer. Right. Um, there's this beautiful uh, quote which you showed me, which I think sort of symbolically ties these two periods together from Professor Sperber, who says that the Ashkenazic tradition of mourning during the Omer reflects the tragedy of the persecutions of the Crusades. Blood touched blood. The blood of Rabbi Akiva's disciples is mixed with the blood of the martyrs 
of Ashkenaz, who sacrificed themselves for the sanctification of God's name. I remember uh, in my own uh, development, not quite as sort of intellectually focused as yours, but the great social divide at my high school, once one was in the, the later years, was whether or not one shaved on Yom Ma'ut, and, you know, whether you were in the sort of like the B'nai Akiva grouping or whether you were... Um, you know, more to the right was manifested through that. And I, I had this uh, this very Haredi um, teacher who would give me a ride to school every day. And uh, he, he I got into the car one morning and he said, Joe, I'm so proud of you. I'm so, so proud of you. And I realized it was Yom Hatzmoth and I'd forgotten to shave, but he had thought it was an ideological statement on my part to not shave, which it wasn't. But I took the compliment uh, in, as, as he saw it, in any case, as it is. But what this is sort of is, is leading us on to is that um, there's also a final stage of the Omer. And that stage is essentially our own times, or at least the 20th century, which after the agricultural and after the journey to Sinai and after Rabbi Akiva's students and after the Crusades and the Middle Ages, there is this 20th century addition to the Omel. We have three days, maybe even four days, you could count it, added to the calendar. Yom HaShoah, Yom HaZikaron, Yom HaTzmaut, which we have discussed, days focusing on the Holocaust, on Israel, and still to come, Yom Yerushalayim as well. So what a journey this seven-week period has been on since its origin in Parshat Emor to our day today. How, how do you process all of that? How do you take that all together? Well, I think it's actually, there's something really beautiful uh, and emblematic, I think, of Jewish tradition here, all of the layers, right? The layers that we have here the layers of memory of trying to make sense of our world uh, around us um, and, and how to respond to it. Uh, and I, I even love the way that um, the Jews in medieval times were able to take a time of, of, of what they imagined was a tragedy in the times of the Talmud, and they were able to, to relate it to their own tragedy and their own mourning. So there's something very significant there about the power of Jewish memory and um, the agency that we have to, to find our own moments of suffering and tie to, to previous moments. Right, right. That, that's beautiful. Now, we, we mentioned um, that the Crusades, and this was in Rabbi Professor Sperber's quote, the Crusades are associated with the Omel and with the Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of God's name of the martyrs of that period. And it's interesting that this phrase, Kiddush Hashem, also appears in Al-Pasha. It appears um, just before um, the laws of the festivals at the end of chapter 22. We're told, You shall not desecrate my name. I will become sanctified amongst Israel. I am God who makes you holy. And this phrase, Kiddush Hashem, just like the Omer, has also been on an interesting journey and has also been understood or associated with very different ideas across time. One of those ideas, as we just mentioned, is martyrdom. But there's also another version 
of it. There are several other versions of it, but one in particular, which I think is probably worthy of, of our discussion, of having a discussion around now. There's this beautiful Gemara, this piece of Talmud in Masechet Yoma, which asks, what do these phrases mean? Desecrating God's name, sanctifying God's name, are they tied to particular actions? And this is what it says. It says, somebody who, um, pardon me, it quotes a teaching of Abaye. Abaye says as follows, that the Kiddush Hashem means that the name of heaven should be made beloved through your actions. And he carries on and says, one who studies and teaches Torah and looks after Talmidei Chachamim and carries themselves pleasantly in all of their interactions. What do people say about such a person? They say, happy are their parents who taught them Torah. Ashrei Rabo, happy is their teacher who taught him Torah. Oy lahem, woe to those who haven't learned Torah. Look at this person who studied Torah. See how pleasant are their ways, how perfected are their actions. And then Abaye provides the flip side. He says, but exactly the same person who fits the same description, who studied Torah, taught Torah, looks after Talmidei Chachamim, but does not carry themselves pleasantly or with trustworthiness in their interactions. What do people say about this person? They say, oi, woe to the person who taught them Torah, woe to his parents, woe to his teacher. This person who studied Torah, look how crooked are his actions and how vile are his ways. Uh, I love, I love, by the way, um, I love this. Uh, I learned it several times at Hartman. It's one of the key texts that we that we used to discuss. And I'll tell you one of the things it means for me, it's that it's almost taking Kiddush Hashem and applying a sociological lens to it. Kiddush Hashem sees us to be a, like a, a psychological or even theological sort of orientation. And it basically says it has to do with sociology. Are people looking at you and saying, your actions are reflective of a God that I want to admire because of your actions? Or are they looking at you and saying, your actions as someone who follows this God uh, actually make me disgusted by this notion of the divine or this uh, religious uh, impulse that must be, mo- must be motivating you? So it, it's not actually so much what we do, but how we are perceived. Well, I think they're tied to each other. You can't fully separate them because I think this text assumes that there's uh, there's certain consensus in this world about what it means to be a decent and good person. Um, so if you behave in a decent and good way, uh, then 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 yes, it's both about the good things that you do and, and how you are perceived by others. Now, I, I, I agree with you. I do love this Gemara. I find it very powerful and inspiring, and it forces us to look beyond our own Dalad Amot, our own... Uh, four cubits of halacha and say, how are we perceived? But I've also felt over the years, um, not quite sure how to say it, a certain um, pressure that comes from this sort of idea, which is to say, um, 
Well, I mean, let, let, let's, this might sound like a funny example. I, I, don't, I don't have a car because we live in Manhattan and I actually really enjoy that. But when I do have a car and I'm driving in the UK, say, where I spend a lot of time, you know, I might want to be aggressive. I might want to hoot at somebody who's, uh, who's cut me up. But I'll, I'll remember my kippah on my head and I'll think, oh, no, I don't want them to think badly of me. But then I'll you know, fly, as I often do, from London to Israel, and I'll, I'll rent a car there. And then there's no need to not be aggressive because I'm not being perceived as as that's a, that's a Jew there in the same in the same way. I mean, is that healthy? I'm not sure it's so healthy. Yeah, it's so funny, Rabbi the two examples that you gave today about shaving and about like shaving your beard and about wearing a kippah are two things that don't really apply to my uh, to my own life. Um, it's, it's, they're fairly gendered, at least in our Orthodox communities. Um, so it's funny that those are the examples that, um, that come up when thinking about how other people think of us uh, as, as Jewish. Uh, I think what you're bringing up is a distinction between that what... That explains um, why you're so aggressive on the roads here, right? When I've seen you driving, because you think no one, no one realizes that you're Jewish. Now I understand. Yeah, it's like my feminist prerogative right, as a Jewish right. woman. Yeah. To drive aggressively. Uh, no, but I would say it actually reminds me um, in my Hartman research team that talks about Israel, uh, I learned two Yiddish concepts, which I'm going to try saying here. And if I mispronounce them, please help me out, which actually I think give rise to this tension that you're pointing to. One is the concept of Shanda, which I think I'm saying right, right? Shanda, which is something that's um I wish I shameful. was qualified to correct you if you were making a mistake, but go on. Oh, you're not? <laughs> I thought you were. Okay, so this, I think, you know, it's a Shanda. It's a Shanda means it's shameful that, especially if a non-Jew sees a, non, a Jew act in this way, like driving aggressively, oh, what a Shanda, it's terrible. The other, it's a concept that was new to me, which is called a Pasnicht, nicht? am I saying it? Pas, okay, great, so you can say Pasnicht. So Pasnicht, uh, it's all about like an internal way of behaving, like pasnished, like is it this feel, suitable? It doesn't feel right. It's... Right, right. So these are actually two different ways. Are we going to think of Kiddush Hashem as really in the realm of pasnished, like what feels right, what feels wrong? Or is it in the realm of Shanda? Is it what other people see as good or bad? Is this helpful or, or not helpful? Right. And I, I've, I've wondered if there's sort of like, a sort of collective neurosis that comes from this. My favorite example of this, and this is not a gendered example, is the way in which sometimes, and I, I find this very much with, his, with Israelis, and um, certainly native-born Israelis, who, when they are outside of Israel, feel that they are representing the whole state. And, and at this point, we've left religious practice, and it's just being a member of the Jewish people or an Israeli citizen as a whole. You might have seen this, Michal, that when you leave Israel, after you've gone through passport control at Ben-Gurion, there is a sign up on the wall which says, Al-Tishkach, do not forget, Bechul, outside of Israel, Atem Hamadina, you are the state, you represent the state. And there seems to be a very direct line from this Gemara in Yoma to this idea. Yeah, yes, a direct line and also an amazing commentary on uh, contemporary Israeli nationalism and it's uh, being intertwined with Jewish peoplehood. Uh, yes, but, but allow me, if it's okay, to make the case as to why this might also be positive. 
Uh, and, you know, you spoke before about neurosis and, and pressure. Uh, I am a rabbi's daughter. Uh, so, so much pressure growing up in actually exemplifying in every action what it means to be a rabbi's kid. And also, my parents were very firm in educating me and my siblings that whatever we did, people would assume and learn that this is the way that Jews, religious Jews, behaved. So exactly this this idea of Kiddush Hashem was really present in my childhood. Even if you weren't wearing a kippah? Even if I wasn't wearing a kippah, uh, Either my brothers were or it was obvious because of other reasons that we were Jewish. But I really, I recall a moment, I must have been nine years old, in which I went to, um, I purchased something from a store in Montevideo in Uruguay. And the, 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 the person at the store gave me back change that was too much. And I remember as a nine-year-old thinking, oh, interesting. I remember learning that halachically, according to Jewish law, I am not actually obligated to return this extra money. I'm talking about like the equivalent of half a dollar, probably in terms of Uruguayan pesos. Uh, I'm not. I'm not obligated to to return this. But maybe the store person will realize that I'm Jewish, and if I will give it back, it will be a form of kiddush Hashem. And I went ahead and I I'm said. Yes, did you give it back? I did. I gave it back. I went oh, ahead and I said, "Hey, you made a mistake." Uh, I, I, and remembering that by story, the way, I'm Jewish. Yes, yes. I was very careful to leave, like you know, my card saying, "I'm Jewish. I'm a rabbi's Make daughter." A yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, no, but 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 there's actually something powerful here because on the one hand, you could criticize this moment and say, "What does it mean to establish a pedagogy in which you teach people that you do the right thing because of what other people will think of you?" On the other hand, this might be one of the most powerful ways to teach individuals to be good people and to be good citizens, right? Uh, like maybe it's an illusion that we, that we lie to ourselves to think that we will all be good individuals if we don't feel the social pressure of other people uh, looking at us and actually expecting us to, to behave in a certain way. And so then it's a funny balance between doing the right thing because it's the right thing but at the same time that being overlayered with an awareness of how should we be perceived i perhaps maybe this is something worthy to conclude with there's this immensely powerful midrash which i've never thought to connect to the story of kiddush hashem but you're you're reminding me of it now and that's to do with uh with reuven reuven who um, in a persuasive reading, does not want his brothers to sell Yosef and actually tries to um, do what he can to prevent that, and obviously he fails. And the Midrash says, were Reuven to have known that this story and his actions were being recorded for posterity in the Torah, he would have rushed back to the pit, put Yosef on his shoulders, and and, uh, and and saved him. And that Midrash captures, it's such a one to think with, but it captures so profoundly the, um, the impact upon our actions if we know that we are being watched and they have a significance for posterity. Ruven knew it was the right thing to do to rescue Yosef from the pit. But how would he have gone about doing it in such a different way had he known his actions were being recorded in the Torah for eternity? Yeah, I, I love I love the Midrash. I think it gives a religious uh, overlay to like the Truman, uh, Truman Show. 
uh, movie. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, that Midrash also points out uh, Ploni Almoni, the, the man uh, in Megillat Ruth that we're going to read in Shavuot, who refuses to take on his obligation to redeem uh, you know, wrote in terms of doing Ibum, of marrying her because, uh, you know, sh- uh, her, her husband died without leaving any children. And the Midrash uh, brings him as another example of someone who would have done the mitzvah, done the right, right thing if he knew that he was being, he was being um, watched. Uh, so perhaps Kirush Hashem in our lives is turning all of us into Ruven and Ploni Almoni, knowing that our actions actually are not just in themselves, but have a wider audience. Yes, that, that, would, be a, that would be beautiful. And I guess I'll end with a bracha for all of us, uh, because right now I think we're spending in quarantine a lot of time in which people aren't watching us, uh, perhaps as closely as they would be if we were out in our workspaces and in public spaces. Uh, so hopefully learning Torah and our parasha will actually give us the, the inner strength and fortitude to continue um, enacting a Kiddush Hashem in whatever ways we can, even when we don't have the public eyes of the non-quarantine life on us. Thank you. This has been the Downtown Drush podcast, a project of the Bronfman Center for Jewish Life, OUJLIC in the downtown Minyan. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation. And please join us here to learn Torah every week.